Welcome to Meals for Maturity, Bible talks to help you mature as a follower of Jesus, by Pastor Dom Fiocco. One of the reasons why I've started these Bible talks is because of the gentle rebuke we find at the end of Hebrews chapter 5 in the New Testament, verse 12. For though by this time, the author writes, you, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since they are a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So Meals for Maturity is my attempt to help us, to help me, have a diet of solid food in addition to what you get in church and to help us grow in maturity, following Jesus for all of life. And so I hope you find them helpful and that they fill you up well on more of God's Word. It's important not to neglect warning signs. Uh, You might be driving your car and a little red warning light comes on about oil or, or overheating in the engine. Well, it doesn't help to put a little black sticker over it on the dashboard and think, well, I can't see it, so out of mind, out of, out of sight, out of mind. Or you might go to your GP and, and she tells you that the warning signs are there for high cholesterol. Well, it doesn't help to ignore the advice, the warning, and celebrate with a bucket of KFC as you watch Collingwood win yet another game and you thank God for the exercise the players are doing vicariously for you. Uh, it's important not to neglect warning signs. Years ago, I twisted my ankle playing indoor soccer. Perhaps you've done a a similar sports injury in your time. Anyway, I rested it for for a day or two. And then I heard an interview on the radio as I was going to sleep. Uh, It was an interview by a sports physio who had this new theory about soft tissue injuries. So rather than the common rice treatment, you know, rest, ice, compression, elevation, that sort of thing, this guy, a physio, was suggesting uh, the meat treatment. Meat standing for movement, exercise, analgesics, and treatment. Meat, M-E-A-T. His theory was to recover as quickly as possible from an injury, keep moving, keep exercising the affected joint as much as possible, and this will help you recover maybe quicker than the old rice idea. So being a meat lover, I thought I'd give this a try on my swollen ankle. So I started walking around more on the ankle, sort of ignoring the pain a little bit. And then I started exercising on it, you know, twisting a little bit here and there, doing little star jumps as much as I was able. But it wasn't long until my pain threshold told me, "Mm, maybe ease off a little bit on this meat program. Well, a few days later, now, things weren't really improving with my ankle. In fact, my foot was so swollen, it was throbbing, and I was hardly getting any sleep. I ignored the warning signs for a little bit longer, and I kept moving around on my ankle. Eventually, however, the, the pain got so bad, I had to go to the emergency department. So off to hospital I went, waiting the usual few hours. It was quite a good morning, really. And then when I was finally seen by the emergency doctor, She took one look at my swollen ankle, my swollen foot, and said, hmm, let's get that x-rayed. Well, sure enough, I had fractured my ankle, and so no amount of meat or even rice was going to fix it up. 
Immediately, my foot was put in a cast, and a week later, I went back to the hospital to get the cast off, where they told me my ankle was so busted up that they needed to operate and put a metal plate in there. So now I have a metal plate in my ankle, and there's no way I'm going to be putting meat or rice on that plate. But the trouble started, you see, when I ignored the warning signs of my busted ankle, thinking it was just a, a small soft tissue injury and moving it and exercising on it, meat was the way to go. It's important not to neglect warning signs. Well, we've been studying the Old Testament prophet of Joel and across chapters one and two, he's giving warning signs to God's people in the form of a devastating locust plague. Warning signs about the impending judgment coming upon them because of their sins. And they will do well to not neglect these warning signs. Like many other Old Testament prophets, Joel is using an event, an illustration in this case, a real event, an unforgettable locust plague, and he's blending, or as I've said, he's milkshaking this current event with a future event. He's taking the day of the Lord, the day of the locusts, and he's using it to foreshadow the future day of the Lord. And we saw that in the last Bible talk. And his point is, the locust plague is uh, devastating. It's a terrible judgment upon Israel in the Old Testament. But the day of the Lord will be far worse for God's people. The day of the locust is like a warning sign. So don't ignore it. It's a warning sign for something greater and more devastating. That is the day of the Lord. So what has Israel done to deserve such a plague of locusts? What have Joel's people done to cause Joel to speak about this impending day of judgment? Why such a doom and gloom chapter? Well, the answer comes in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Let's hear Nerida read that to us now. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Now, we're not exactly told what Joel's people have done here. So no specific sin is mentioned that links this judgment of a plague that's come upon them. We know from chapter one that this locust plague is devastating and it destroys pretty much everything in its path, uh, leaving, leaving God's people suffering and crying out for help from the Lord God. But we're never told exactly what the sin or the sins the people have committed to deserve this. But from chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, we can gather enough info 
to realize that to realize that God's people have drifted away from God. They've turned their back on the ways of their covenantal God. It could be idolatry, it could be immorality, it could be some other sin. We're just not told. What we are told is what the solution is. Two times, verses 12 to 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God. Come back to him. It's like Joel is asking us to get out our highlighter pen and highlight or underline verses 12 and 13. God's people have wandered away from their Lord, and even though judgment comes upon them in the form of locusts, it's not too late to repent. It's not too late to return. It's not too late to come back to their promise-keeping God. Yet, even now, God says. So the same God who thunders before this destroying army of insects in chapter 2, verse 11. He thunders, here comes the day of judgment. Well, he now cries out with this offer of deliverance. Here comes the day of grace. But this day of grace only comes when his people return to him. See, it must be genuine repentance. Their returning must be wholehearted. And what we find in chapter 2, Uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, are really outward symbols of this repentance. So we read about fasting and weeping and deep sorrow for their sins. And in verse 13, God also calls for an inward renewal, renewal of their hearts. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Another translation puts it beautifully. Don't just tear your clothing in repentance. Instead, tear your hearts. God's saying, yes, Show me by your outward actions you mean business. You can do that. But more than that, show me by your broken and contrite heart that you're the real deal, that you're serious about this returning to me. Remember how King David in Psalm 51 verse 17 puts it, My sacrifice, O God, is a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The New Testament will go on to say, Circumcise your hearts. Let the Holy Spirit change your inner being. True repentance means a whole change of attitude. God is looking for a whole heart and a broken heart from you and me. Well, we know God is serious about this day of grace offer because Joel gives us the often quoted verse describing the God of all grace in the Old Testament. In verse 13b, he writes, Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He does not wish to punish. Here is a description of God's character that, of course, is repeated across the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, in the Psalms, in the story of Jonah. It was probably said during times of corporate worship. It's almost like their John 3.16 verse that you sometimes whip out in your Bible study group because you can't remember too many other verses. So you you say, oh, John 3.16. I'm good at remembering John 11 verse 35. You should try it as well. Jesus wept. I can handle remembering that one. You see, when the Old Testament writers long for grace and mercy from above, they will often appeal to God's character. They'll They'll appeal to his Hesed, love, that's the Hebrew word for the New Testament word, which we have as grace, his hesed, love. And then in verses 15 to 17, God gives them this 
specific corporate programs or a, a church gathering liturgy, if you like, to show that their repentance is actually genuine, to show that they do indeed rend their hearts. So Joel writes, blow the trumpets in Zion. Sound the early warning alarm system. Declare a time of fasting. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Assemble the elders. Get the kids to church, even the babies still being breastfed. And if a couple have just got married on their honeymoon, call the bride and groom back to church. And then get the priests and the ministers of the law, uh, the ministers of the Lord, to stand in the temple at the altar. So here they are facing the Holy of Holies, the very physical symbol of God's glory. And then get the priests to weep and plead with the sovereign Lord God to spare his people. Get them to pray, O Lord, don't let your special possession, so Abraham's people have promised, don't let them become an object of mockery. Don't let them become, don't let us become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who come along and say, has the God of Israel left them? Where is their God? One writer puts it like this, the whole section of Joel has moved to a climax in prayer, a prayer not based on the terror of the plague of locusts, but now on the glory of God's name. No higher appeal, no grander motivation can there be but to God's glory. So the Old Testament ministers, on behalf of God's gathered assembly of people, they are to throw themselves, as it were, upon the mercy of God and at the same time appeal to God to guard his reputation so that the glory goes to him. Since no one in Joel's day can endure it, that is the day of the locusts or the day of the Lord, then let all of God's people come together and pray and weep. Pray that God may hold back his hand of judgment. It's not too late to avoid total disaster. There is, you see, a glimmer of hope. But note the urgency to Joel's cry. He says, come back to the Lord, return to him. Don't delay, do it now. Don't ignore the warning signs. The New Testament will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, now is the time of God's favour. Today is the day of salvation. Here's a helpful quote, I think. If we put off repentance another day, we have uh, a one more day to repent of and uh, one more day less to repent in. If we put off repentance another day, we have one more day to repent of and one less day to repent in. Well, Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, gives us this transition, this milkshake blend from the historical day of locusts to the eschatological day of the Lord. Joel chapter 1 starts, remember, with this terrible scourge coming upon the land and God's people, locusts and judgment. Well, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, ends with this offer of grace coming upon the land and God's people, repentance and grace. God says to the locusts in chapter 1, swoop down on the land and my people. Well, the same God also says, let grace swoop down upon my repentant people. And in the next episode, we'll see if they actually take up God's offer or not. Well, there's nothing new in applying this message of Joel to you and me today. Yet again, it's a simple reminder of the gospel message that we need to hear week in and week out. 
It's the message of judgment and the message of grace today. In Joel's day, there was only one way to avoid judgment. It was to rend your hearts, return to me with all your heart, repent and know the God of all grace and mercy who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And in our day, there is still only one way to avoid judgment. It's to rend your hearts, return to the Lord Jesus with all your heart, repent and know the God of all grace and mercy who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and of course displayed supremely in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for your sins and mine. In Joel's day, God sends loads of locusts to remind his people of his covenantal love towards them. In our day, it's probably not a, a plague of locusts or bogon moths that God sends your way, though perhaps every time you see a little grasshopper, maybe you'll remember Joel. But for us in our day, it might be sickness or serious illness that lays you up. It might be a job crisis or some relationship trouble or breakdown. It might be financial stress that comes upon you. Maybe God might even use a really difficult moment in your life to remind you more of his steadfast love, of his hesed love, and call you to repent. Whatever or whoever God sends your way to remind you of his judgment and grace, make sure you do a Joel and turn once again to see afresh the cross of the Lord Jesus and remember his steadfast love and grace toward you. Where to be like the crowd in Acts chapter 2, remember on the day of Pentecost, as many heard the gospel message of grace and mercy in Christ, what did they do? They cried out in one voice, Hey, Apostle Peter, what shall we do in response to your message? Well, the call from Peter was to repent and to believe. I quite enjoy the writings of Christian author Max Licato. And this story illustrates well, I think, the message of Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13 for us, and what our response to God's offer of grace in Christ might look like. Max Licato, Max Licato writes, Maria lived in San Paulo in Brazil, when one day she discovered her teenage daughter Christina had run away from home. Growing up in a very poor home, Christina had always dreamt of a better life in the city. So one morning, without her mum knowing, she left the home and she boarded a bus for Rio de Janeiro. It's about a, a seven-hour journey. Maria, mum, was, was heartbroken, of course, and immediately that morning she knew where her daughter had fled to. She'd always talked about wanting to go to Rio and make a better life. But Maria also knew that with no money, her daughter's life on the streets of Rio was going to be fraught with danger. So her mum took a bus trip to Rio in search of her lost daughter. Not knowing where to go or where to begin uh, to look in this vast, sprawling city of millions, Maria went into a photo booth and she closed the curtain and she just took this stack of photos, little passport photos of herself. And then she cut them all up and she wrote a, a little note on the back of each photo of herself. And then Maria went around the bars and nightclubs and hotels and public toilets and, and places where prostitutes and drug addicts would hang out anywhere she could. And she simply stuck up the black and white photo of herself on the doors and windows and street lamps and anywhere she could. Maria 
didn't hold out much hope for her daughter, but at least she did something. At least she was doing something. Well, it was many weeks later, after Maria had returned home, that Christina found herself very much like the prodigal son in Jesus' famous parable. She was living on the street, selling her body, and she'd hit rock bottom. Christina's dream had actually become a living nightmare. Her youthful good looks now showed only pain and fear and exhaustion across her face. One day she came down into the foyer of a seedy hotel where uh, Christina looked up and she spotted the tiny, simple black and white photo of her mother. And Christina's ears, uh, eyes were filled with tears. Her heartbeat sort of raced and skipped a little as she picked off the photo stuck to a pole. And she turned the photo over and then with tears streaming down her face, she read the little note scrawled on the back from her mum. It said, Whatever you've done, whoever you've become, come home. I love you, mum. And Christina did. The simple message, you see, of the gospel of all grace, that God has written for you and me on the portrait of his son, as it were, says the same thing to you and me. Whatever you've done, whoever you've become, come home. I love you. Though your sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Amen. Thanks for listening to Meals for Maturity. Keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.